Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. Welcome to episode 2 of my series on film discussions. Last season, I talked about 5 of my favorite foreign films, all of which shared a common theme of class conflict. I wanted to continue this discussion of similarly themed films with this season's iteration of a film discussion, in which I will focus on films released in the year 2017. 2017, to me, is to movies what 2016 was to music. You know, that's often said celebrated by uh by many as you know one of the best years in recent memory uh, for music and one of my favorite recent years the films discussed today will have the same theme of finding catharsis of finding oneself and the value we place in our relationships specifically that with uh, our parental parental figures these films are about finding oneself in relation to others and overall of acceptance within you know that family structure to be more precise not every film discussed today will have this theme front and center and will more than likely just uh, focus on a different theme as its central theme but the importance of relationships and acceptance for the characters in this film is in these films is undeniable their relationship to family a geographic location a system one's mother and one's job is present in these films once again i will refrain from discussing major spoilers but might allude to certain moments or story beats without giving too much detail in order to paint the picture and help draw the point i'm trying to make but of course this is also a way for me to recommend movies for you all and it takes from the experience if i recommend something that i spoil i want you all to see for yourselves why I love these films and more importantly how you feel about them forming your own opinions. Whether it's positively or negatively, how you feel about a movie is always important. If you can explain why you felt that way, that's even better. If you do end up watching any of these films or if you already have, please let me know what you thought of them and whether or not you agree with my assessment of them or not. It's your prerogative. You know, everything's interpretive. Uh, it's all subjective. So, you know, I, I'm curious to see what you thought. First off, I want to start this discussion with one of the most thematically and artistically beautiful pieces of cinema i've ever had the pleasure of experiencing it's not only my favorite pixar film but it is also my favorite animated film of all time and on my top 10 list uh, of films of all time coco is the most accurate and realistic representation of mexican culture that i've ever seen in mainstream media at least the day-to-day -day lives of everyday civilians with the traditional collectivist mindset. This is a family culture, something that a lot of other media uses to emphasize the sadness of the violence that goes on there, and in turn create more drama based on glorified violence that an audience of Americans may watch in order to indulge in their, you know, violent fantasies. Mexico's cultural beauty is mostly used as a narrative tool to elicit an attachment and empathy from those who willingly turn a blind eye to the horrors that occur both across the border and within their country. Coco is a celebration of Mexican culture. With an emphasis placed on the annual Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead celebration. This choice allows for a deep exploration of the subject of death and the celebration of it in Mexican culture through a dramatic story of family and remembrance that is easily digestible for kids and equally meaningful for adults. A lot of this is done by Pixar's always excellent animation. An example of this is the use of colors in the afterlife, symbolizing the peaceful life after death that is believed to exist by an overwhelmingly Catholic culture. This beautification of Mexican culture is in sharp contrast with the representation of Mexican lifestyle we usually see in media, which leans heavily on the ultra-violence that is a result of corruption and cartel power struggles through the drug trade, which has altered the world's perception of Mexico as a whole. As an American looking from the outside in, it is not my place to say whether or not this is accurate or an exaggeration. I am aware of the terrible things that are going on throughout the country, but I do believe, both from personal experience down south and within the larger Hispanic community in America, that the cultural spirit is alive and well. The drabness or bleakness of Mexican life that is usually visualized 
utilized through the use of a uh, use of a yellow filter over scenes taking place in Mexico is in essence meant to elicit a sense of a spiritless people of a country suffering from literal as much as cultural death. Of course, being a Disney film, we weren't going to get a deep exploration or commentary on the violent death and corruption corruption that Mexico as a, as a nation is suffering from. But we instead get a celebration of people of Mexico as a people. And this isn't just done in the colors and symbology. We also get a taste of the culture with beautiful musical compositions spread out throughout the film in natural ways and an important and emotional story beats. They are catchy, as popular songs should be, but also lyrically meaningful, as traditional Mexican music tends to be. With songs about all kinds of love being represented, the world we see in Coco shows us the beauty of music and the ability it has to connect us. But I think my favorite use of music in this movie deals with the most popular song to come out of this film and its relation to the concept of legacy. No spoilers, but I think its significance to certain characters and its original purpose and the ultimate transformation of it as a commercially successful track touches on the issue of exploitation found in the music industry, all in the name of legacy and success. It's a film that doubly serves as a reminder of, and a warning against, the importance placed on legacy. Being remembered after death keeps us alive. We live on in the memory of our loved ones. The legacy we leave behind is wholly influenced by how people remember us, which in turn is influenced by our interactions with others. What we said and did, the kind of person we were. So to be loved in the afterlife, we have to be loved in life. I have never felt so personally attached to the story, the characters, and the world of a film, ever. This was a movie I could not keep my eyes off of, whether it was the way characters and family relations were depicted, or the mannerisms of certain characters, or the architectural re reverence to Mexican towns, or the cultural representation. Everything about this film I adored. I watched this film three times, I believe, and every single time I have cried, each time more than the last. I feel personally connected to this film. The titular Coco bears a striking resemblance, albeit cartoonishly, to my great-grandma, whom the entire family respected, loved, and was considered the matriarch of the family before her passing. Every time I see Mama Coco, I think of my ma Mama Tita, and I cry. I get to thinking about my family and how much I miss them. The only family I've here is my immediate family, my parents and siblings, and seeing films like this makes me think about all the time I've been away from them, my larger family, and the ugliness that I touched upon earlier preventing me from seeing them. I'm forever grateful for being afforded the opportunity to spend most of my childhood summers with my family and my own Mama Coco, and I am very thankful that I finally have a piece of media that I can look at and appreciate in ways that transcend the traditional enjoyment of films. It's more than celebration, it's more than appreciation, it's more than enjoyment, it's life. I know I didn't talk specifically about elements of the film that I enjoyed at least as much as I have before and will with the others on this list, but I wanted to keep it that way. I have a connection with this film that is very difficult for me to describe to people. I tried my best, but I don't think I managed to capture the gravity of its effect on me and my emotions, but just know I really love this movie and am forever grateful for its existence. I didn't know what to expect when I first decided to watch Lady Bird. It was Greta Gerwig's directorial debut and a film I have at I had at that point heard nothing about, but I watched it and I liked it. It was enjoyable, funny, hard heartfelt, but unlike, you know, something like Coco, I had nothing to relate with the titular character with. Her place, aspirations, or even her high school experience. Nothing. But I still managed to like it. I don't think not relating to a fictional character is reason enough to dislike something, like a piece of media, but it didn't really leave an impression on me. I moved on from it. Fast forward a couple months ago, oh, I'm sorry, fast forward a couple months, and I found myself looking for something to watch. Um, so I decided to rewatch Lady Bird. Maybe a rewatch is all I needed to fall in love with it. Nothing. I still liked it. I didn't think it was amazing 
or something I would watch again. It was great, but not amazing. But I would later watch it again and again. And upon my last, my latest viewing for the purposes of writing about it for this episode, I have lost count. I cannot say that I will ever have a similar connection to this film as I do with something like Goko. I just don't see that happening. But goddamn, do I regularly find myself rewatching it. It's not particularly funny or sad or heartfelt. I genuinely feel no extreme emotion while watching this. Like, honestly, I don't think I feel anything. So why do I like this movie so much that to warrant multiple viewings? Maybe writing about it will help me find out. So let's start from the top. Lady Bird is a film about Christine McPherson, who insists on being referred to as her self-given name, Lady Bird. Going through your typical high school drama, such as wanting to be popular, puppy love, fights with best friends, issues at home, and the desire to do and be more than one is at that age. Lady Bird is someone who wants a lot, but does very little to get what she wants, which I think is most teenagers' experience. And this is the central theme behind the film, I think. One's desire to become more. One's eagerness to spread their wings and fly to reach new heights, which is surely a challenge with a mother like Lady Bird's, whose obsessive compulsive behavior and perfectionist tendencies make her the magnet keeping Lady Bird grounded, challenging Lady Bird's aspirations with a realist perspective. I think this dynamic works well, especially when coupled with Lady Bird and her father's less stringent relationship. And I think I've realized what it is that I enjoy about this film that keeps me coming back. And it's nothing complicated or pretentious like its commentary on class divisions or the importance of self-expression or the teenage search for validation or even the pattern of generational trauma. No, I now understand that it is Lady Bird's honest exploration of relationships that I absolutely adore. I've given two examples with the parents, but obviously a coming-of-age high school story will and should have center focus on high school students' relationships. Lady Bird's interactions with her best friend, potential friends, her crush, it is all layered with a sense of awkwardness and a perfect showcase of one's different personas. We see Lady Bird's true self when she's with her best friend Julie, and variations of herself when she's around different people, like when she's trying to befriend and impress popular girl Jenna, or when she is interacting with her crush Danny, or her brother. There's nuance to every interaction, every character. We do not have to agree with these characters' actions or beliefs, nor do we have to even understand them, but this film does an impeccable job at making them believable. Believability and nuance is the name of the game here, and that's why I've watched this movie so many times without feeling strong emotions during its runtime. None of these characters, not even the titular protagonist, are meant to be good or bad guys. They may be assholes, gentlemen, rude, nice, and every characteristic in the English language, but they are never reduced to good or bad characters. And that is refreshing. No, this isn't the first film to do this. Even out of the films I talked about in this series, that realist approach to characters in conflict was one of my highest praises for Oscar Ferrati's A Separation, discussed last time. But that was mostly with adults in a legal conflict. This is just adolescence being adolescence. This is why I like the show Euphoria so much as well, but to a lesser extent. I do think when comparing the two Euphoria's characters, although nuanced are shaped around a specific archetype that unfortunately stains the overall complexities of the character, or alternatively, characters are less one-sided, partly due to less re reliance on a single archetype for each character in this film. This honest characterization makes it so it's less of a drama as it tries to be, and less of a comedy it hints at being, and more of an honest and realistic character study. I mean, life is neither a comedy or tragedy, there are hints are bo of both in our day-to-day. -day. Alternatively, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri tries to merge the two genres in a way that is mostly successful. The setup and circumstances start us post-tragedy, with Mildred Hayes' daughter having been brutally raped and murdered. After hearing this, you might rightfully be wondering how it is that comedy is interpolated in this film. Well, it mostly relies 
relies on poking fun at small-town mentalities, with bigotry often being the setup and punchline of the film's more comedic moments. This style of comedy isn't for everyone, but it's important to note that this film never strays away from its roots as a drama. Every film I am discussing today has an element of motherhood, whether it's Miguel's matriarch's adherence to Mama Imelda's strict anti-music sentiments, Lady Bird's antagonization of her mother, those mothers in these movies dictate the main character's motivations and actions in a film to some extent, but only in Three Billboards do we get the opportunity to follow the mother and see things from her perspective. It's powerful in how it's delivered, pushed in large by large part by the stacked cast of fantastic actors and overarching themes that pose difficult questions to everyone watching. This is a movie that questions whether there's a distinction between seeking justice and seeking vengeance, which to some are one and the same. Furthermore, its theme of redemption follows individual characters through their individual arcs as much as it follows the main story. Mildred Hayes, although surrounded by a, a close group of friends who help her in her quest to seek justice in her daughter's gruesome murder, is largely presented as the lone wolf type. She's putting pressure on her own, on her town's po police department to do more in finding her daughter's killer, and she's doing it publicly. In a small town of people who have, who place as much trust and faith into the police as we see conservatives do in the real world through the events that have transpired in our life. Sam Rockwell's Officer Dixon is written to highlight the worst qualities of the police. Corrupt, bigoted, overly violent in his methods. Even then, this movie is as much about him as it is about Mildred. Without spoiling it, both undergo major changes, and in the case of Officer Dixon, it's the sort of change that we rarely see portrayed in film, and definitely much less heard about in the real world. After the root of it, or at the root of it, Three Billboards shows us the flaws found in everyone. Some may claim that it does it in a way that almost tries to forgive, or it's best to admonish. Can the worst of us be redeemed? If so, what exactly must one do to attain such levels of redemption? The answer to, the, to those questions are not universal. The context of any given situation will dictate how each of us answer those questions. Furthermore, can true justice ever be found? Well, the movie deliberately leaves that question open to interpretation, but I think that it, its commentary on vengeance and redemption is enough to help us form an answer, at least the answer that is being not so subtly pushed by the movie. It's uh, interesting to have watched all these films with similar themes of acceptance and the relationship between mother and child being used as a narrative tool for the main character's motivation, and landing on this one, which centers on the mother herself, whose motivation stems from the untimely death of her daughter. I was personally intrigued by this, as I do not hold a motherly perspective myself. It gets you to realize that the child in that relationship has as important a job for the betterment of their mother's life as the mother has in bettering her child's life. We are used to films that highlight the parental hierarchy where the child is either presented as or is uh, self-described as a disappointment to their mother and must then work to realize that what their mother did and all they do is for the good of the child. Well, what if the mother is the one that feels like they have let down their child, that they have work to do in order to accept their place in their relationship and the intentions of the other? Well, we see that here, and it is a beautiful reminder of the humanity of those who we are quick to idolize in our own personal life. Being a, m a great mother is all but synonymous with being a superhero, but rarely do we take the time to realize that mothering does not come easy, and it is something that people must work hard at. The operative word in that sentence being good, because although the role itself requires a certain type of person, it's not always the case that someone thrust into that role is that type of person, which is where we get bad mothers. I, Tanya centers on the product of a bad mother, Tanya Harding. This film serves as a biopic of the events surrounding Harding's rise to fame and the subsequent destruction of everything she worked for. It's a really interesting take on the biopic as it centers the film as a retelling of the events from interviews of those involved. As you might imagine, this is ripe for interpretation uh, of the same event as everyone has a different perspective. I appreciated this, but I don't think that this was incorporated as well or as much as it could have. But ultimately, this film is a fantastic retelling of a moment in popular American history with an exceptional performance from Margot Robbie, who plays 
is the titular Olympic figure skater. This film is all about the building tension and stress in Harding as we see all the hardships that she had to go through and their effects on her. And if you aren't convinced by Margot Robbie's acting prowess as you watch the film, there is this great scene towards the end of the film that sees Harding being unable to hold in all the pent-up stress we see has been building up through not only her career but her entire life. She breaks, does everything she can to mask this before she goes out for a routine. And Robbie isn't the only perform powerful performance in this film. Alison Janney's Academy Award-winning performance as Lavana Harding, Tanya's mother, sold us on how much or how awful of a mother she was. Abusive, cold, and self-serving. Her portrayal of everything a mother should not be really sold the point I wanted to make earlier about the effects of a mother on her child. In a lot of cases, positive, but as we see in this case, very negative. Lavana Harding wasn't the antagonist of the film in the conventional way. She didn't stand in the way of Tanya's success. In fact, it was Lavana that pushed Tanya to work hard and reach her goals, but to extreme and unhealthy levels. So it's a really interesting and much more realistic portrayal of a villain, one that highlights the complexity that can surface within relationships and the importance of love within them. But this mother-daughter relationship is not the only one portrayed in this film. As Tanya, as the nucleus, we see how her relationships with her husband, her bodyguard, trainer, the Olympic Committee, the press, all had a part to play in her story and the unfortunate events that ensued during her time in the limelight. The abuse she endured had an effect on her and played a part in forming the kind of person she was to become. There's a point in the film where she says something along the lines of her being physically abused so much that she started to believe she deserved it. Interestingly, I related this to a passage I read while reading a, a biography of Brazil for one of my classes by Eloisa Maria Murgel Starling and Lilia Moritz Schwartz, which reads, But today, Brazilian society is still marked by a division that is rarely mentioned, one that transforms a person's color into an ind indicator of social difference. This is evidenced every day by the actions of the police, who stop and arrest many more blacks than whites. The practice is euphemistically referred to as interpolation. There are many cases in which innocent individuals who are constantly harassed by the police begin to actually believe that they are somehow guilty. The anthropologist Didier Fassin calls this incorporated memory. The body remembers before the mind has time to reflect. Now this of course differs in that this passage describes an act of racism against free blacks uh, living within a slavery society or slave society in the earlier uh, early days of Brazil and the remnants of it still you know, being found today across the world in different systems and institutions throughout different nations. But the basic principle still stands, right? It's an important point that I think the film does a good job of presenting. Tanya Harding was a product of all the abuse she suffered from the hands of her, you know, mother and husband, the very people that are supposed to show her all the love and care in the world. This then relates to the overall theme I said applies to all these films, it being the acceptance of oneself. Tanya accepted that her lower class background and broken family had made her who she was. And she understood more than anyone that she was to be judged for it, in this case literally, by the judges at her competitions, the Olympic Committee, the press, and all of America at one point. This film's hero, quote unquote, is no hero at all. In fact, in the eyes of many, she was a villain. A villain who also happened to be a victim perceived to perpetuate generational trauma. Hurt people hurt people. I'm sure you've all heard that before at one point in your life. Well, Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here is a cinematic embodiment of this, but not how you might think. This film starring Joaquin Phoenix is a short 90-minute dose of tension that has the audience equal parts disturbed and engaged. With highly stylized camera work that transports us directly into this gritty world, we follow Joe, a mercenary who specializes in the retrieval of victims of human trafficking. His methods are brutal and his past even more so, with him being haunted by the memories of his abusive father and his time in the military and FBI. It is a powerful film that further underscores the effect that one's past has on them that I, Tanya, also touched on, as I mentioned earlier. Joe is a troubled man, and Phoenix brings nuance and intricate detail to this disturbed character. Now, that might sound familiar to some of you, and bear with me as I draw comparisons to Phoenix's most recent performance as the Joker. After rewatching this film for the purposes of this episode, I cannot help 
would feel that Todd Phillips studied this film as it bears striking similarities to his 2019 Oscar-nominated character study. Here, I am going to give a quick, spoiler-free, for the most part, synopsis that applies to both of these films. Ready? This film follows a mentally ill recluse, namely suffering from suicidal ideation, stemming from post-traumatic stress disorder, who lives with and takes care of his elderly and sickly mother in New York, or a New York-esque city, while he strives to find purpose in life and finds himself embroiled in a very violent mess. Watch both films and let me know how good of a job I did describing them. Furthermore, it seems that Phillips might have some creative ins- taken some creative inspiration, and I'm mainly thinking of one shot in particular when I saw when I say this. Uh, this sh- this sh- shot sees Joaquin Phoenix in both films kicking open a door after descending down a flight of stairs as the camera tracks him from behind. Again, I'm not knocking either of these films. God knows the Joker already gets enough people calling it deri- derivative of King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, but I thought these similarities were worth mentioning. Radiohead member Johnny Greenwood composed the score for this film and did an impeccable job of matching the tone and tempo of this increasingly eerie psychological thriller. Some of these pieces sound like they were taken out of a psychological horror movie, utilizing sounds reminiscent of the classic anxiety-inducing scratchy theme from the, from Hitchcock's 1960 horror classic Psycho. But of course this mostly works because of its expert use at appropriately fast-paced moments. This film sh- knows exactly when to slow down in what we see and hear and have us focus on a single subject, whether it be to reflect or unsettle us. Like I said, you get anxiety-inducing moments interpolated by the quietest moments you have ever seen in a film, made even more obvious when juxtaposed with the formally described scenes. I'm going to keep this short because I feel if I continue talking about this film, I'm going to give spoilers, which I most definitely do not want, more so than the other films on this list. Thrillers are inherently meant to elicit strong emotions out of you and keep you engaged and in suspense, so having one spoiled would outright ruin the experience. And as much as I love every film on this list and as big of a connection I have with Coco, when looking at each of these pieces of cinema, I would say that You Were Never Really Here is my favorite movie of 2017. I recommend everyone watch this as soon as you can. Thank you so much for listening to me talk about some of my favorite films from 2017. I, of course, believe that every single one of these movies is worth watching, and I'm sure you all have your own movie or list of movies released in 2017 that you absolutely loved. Please don't hesitate to send me those recommendations, and also to let me know what you thought of these films if you do end up watching any of them. For those of you interested, Coco is available on to stream on Disney+, Plus. Lady Bird is on Netflix, Three Billboards is not available on any streaming service, but you can rent it, I, Tonya is on Hulu, and You Were Never Really Here is on Amazon, Amazon Prime Video. So there's a nice variety in streaming services there. I'm probably going to have more stuff to say about these movies that I did not think of when writing this as is always the case when talking about films for me but i think i did a pretty good job covering some of the things i enjoyed the most about these movies anyway that's going to be it for me for this episode thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the show and appreciate the time and effort i put into researching writing recording and editing it please consider supporting me on patreon at patreon.com social medicine there's only one tier of a dollar a month and that's for anyone who enjoys the show and wants to help build it don't forget to stay safe and stay sane have a great rest of your day goodbye